0: is everybody here are we good
1: screw them you're here i'm here drew's here what do we care <laughs> all go. right let's do it then why change now kimberly that's what i want to know why change now new Start year, the what, new year who off bold right. hey everybody i'm Kai rosdell welcome back to make me smart where we make today makes sense
0: and I'm Kimberly Adams. Thank you, everybody, for joining us on this Monday, January the 8th. It's our first episode of 2024, and Happy New Year to everybody, and you specifically, Kai, because I can and, see you.
1: And and you, too. And you, too. Yes, one does wonder who else is out there uh, participating in this podcast. Anyway, yeah. um, we, we will do uh, what we always do, uh, some news, some smiles, uh, and then get uh, on our merry way. What do you got, Kimberly Adams?
0: Uh, I have been watching, as have most of the other black women in my life, what's been unfolding with Claudine Gay and her resignation at Harvard. And there's been a lot written about how all that went down. I won't pile on to it too much more. But one of the things that has struck me Throughout my career, and especially as I've spoken to other Black women in positions of power, even if they're only in power for short periods of time, which tends to happen, is that one of the markers of privilege in the workplace that a lot of people don't give attention to is who gets to recover from mistakes, right? Who gets to mess up, to say the wrong thing in the wrong setting, who gets grace. And the benefit of the doubt. And so black women in particular, and I can speak to this because that's my experience, we are always told, encouraged and talking to each other about this need to be, yes, twice as good for half as much and all of that narrative, but also just perfect all of the time, because there's this understanding that if you slip up, no matter how high you've gone, no matter what credentials you have backing you up, no matter how many years and decades you've put in the work, one slip up will be enough to undo you in a way that it's not the case for other people. And that really struck me. I was just thinking about it, um, Quite a bit as as I watched all of this play out and I was reading Aaron Haynes writing in the 19th mm-hmm. about this and she was talking specifically about sort of the organized effort to oust gay in this particular circumstance. But she said, you know, she was talking about I'll just read a little bit. Conservatives have long used a racist playbook as a guide to political victory, but at the start of another consequential election in a year in America that remains deeply divided, it's clear this is a strategy they remain committed to and have refined four years into a national reckoning over institutional inequality. The white grievance stoked by Donald Trump on his path to the presidency in 2016 was narrowly defeated in 2020, but has come roaring back in 2024 with a fresh set of culture warriors whose targets remain largely the same. Women, people of color, or both. Against black women specifically, the conservative agenda is clear minimize their excellence and exaggerate their mistakes. Their identities and leadership have become weaponized and politicized. There is no room for error. And also in the show notes, we link to Claudine Gay's op-ed in the New York Times in which she said, yes, I made mistakes. In my initial response to the atrocities of October 7th, I should have stated more forcefully what all people of good conscience know. Hamas is a terrorist organization that seeks to eradicate the Jewish state. And at a congressional hearing last month, I fell into a well-laid trap. I neglected to clearly articulate that calls for ge- the genocide of Jewish people are abhorrent and unacceptable and that I would use every tool at my disposal to protect students from that kind of hate. But, you know, again, there's there's you don't get to make mistakes at that level. And that's hard. It, it, it And I think about it a lot, but it's really awful to watch it happen. And if if this is what it looks like at that high level, it it just tells you what it looks like that's happening in workplaces all over the country and happens all of the time with less attention. So
1: that's my spiel on that. And, and it doesn't help at all and, in fact, makes it all the more more um, horrible, really, that it's a white guy leading the charge. Bill Ackman, billionaire investor yes. and, and <laughs> uh, for some reason guy who has it out for Claudine Gay, Harvard alum, by the way. Uh, I mean,
0: is it that he has it out for Claudine Gay or that he has it out for what she represents? Because well, yeah. this is part of a larger push against people who are advocating for more diversity, equity, inclusion, Ida, whatever acronym you want to pick. There is an organized pushback against this happening throughout the corporate world, through ha- happening in academia right now. And it reminds me of all these conversations we had after the murder of George Floyd about why black people did not actually believe white people when they said that this time was going to be different. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And now there's this organized, overwhelming pushback against a lot of these efforts that were put in place after George Floyd was murdered. And very few people are speaking up to stop it. And a lot of corporations are
1: rolling over for it. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, okay. All right, what's yours? So, (laughs) so mine is, uh, about Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, uh, a retired four-star general, uh, in the United States Army. And also, uh, not for nothing, a member of the president's cabinet, uh, in -hmm. the nuclear weapons chain of command. Uh, the secretary of freaking defense at a time when there are shooting wars all over the place who Mm -hmm. disappeared for four days and didn't tell anybody, including his boss. I, what was he thinking? What I don't understand. Truly. What was he thinking? I mean,
0: he told some people,
1: just so, not enough so, people. So, so, so he told a teeny little fraction of his personal staff, and he told, on the second day, he told the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Then on the fourth day, he told the National Security Advisor of the United States, Jake Sullivan. And then on the fifth day, half an hour before the press release went out, he told some members of Congress. I mean, come on. Yeah. Come on. Right?
0: My question as I watched this unfold over the weekend was what kind of relationship does he have with the White House that he could even go that many days without people noticing
1: Right, and yeah, I don't. I I don't know. I don't know. I mean, look, he was he was hand. Obviously, he was handpicked by the president because that's the way secretaries of well cabinet departments are. They are handpicked by the president. But he had a longstanding relationship with the president. I believe the president's son Beau worked for uh, General Austin when General Austin was on active duty. So there was a an emotional component there as well. I just this opens up the president to such congressional scrutiny. Forget the Republicans. I mean, Tom Cotton's going to go to town on this guy, right? But there are Mm -hmm. Democrats who are like, what in the name of all that is holy are you thinking? And and it's a question he should have to answer.
0: I will say, though, I've been a little bit surprised at how big of a deal this has been in Washington over the last few days. And I feel like I'm, I'm missing something because... It seems like this is a guy who was very private and should have told more people than he did, but that there wasn't, you know, malice behind it, um, that it didn't harm anything, that he had set up, you know, people to fill in for him. And so I feel like I'm missing something here. Okay.
1: Okay. So a couple of things. Number one... He did not set anybody up to fill in for him. The person who's in charge when the secretary of defense is out of the office, as it were, with air quotes, is the deputy mm-hmm. secretary of defense. The deputy secretary of defense, Kathleen Hicks, was on vacation in Puerto Rico and had to be called and told that Lloyd Austin needed her to do his job. She was not told that he was in the hospital.
0: Ah, That's okay. number
1: one. Number two, this is a colossal failure of judgment. And if, mm. and if Austin were... Still a commissioned officer, anywhere below the grade of four stars, and maybe even at four stars, and he had this failure of judgment. He would have been relieved on the spot, on wow. the spot, right? And and the cause would have been loss of confidence, right? If the captain of an aircraft carrier in the middle of combat operations, I went out on Twitter the other day and said this, if because I'm back on Twitter, but that's a whole other thing. Um, I saw. I, I know, it's, being I, spicy I've, too. I, I, feel, I feel some shame about it. But look, if the captain of an aircraft carrier went missing for four days in the middle of combat operations, he would have been relieved, literally, uh, like like he would not have been allowed to go to a stateroom and get a change of clothes. He would have been on a helicopter mm. out of there before he knew what hit him. And, wow! Okay. And and that's the way it goes. You don't. It, you know. I mean. I know. We just talked about second chances and, and all this jazz. You in uh, that job. With this failure of judgment, I don't think you get a second chance.
0: Well, I think military things are a bit different than academia yeah, yeah, in terms of
1: life or death I know. decisions. I know. Sorry, that um, was a rant. I just, you know, also he's in the presidential line of succession for crying out loud. Yeah, I kind of need to know where those folks are. But
0: that was uh, another thing I read is that there is supposed to be a team that knows there is, where right? everybody yeah. right, right, is right. at any given point in time. So what was that team doing? Right.
1: <laughs> Right. As well. Right. To- so, so many questions that Austin just could have, with a press release, just settled. And I understand he's a private guy, but you don't have, yes, you have the HIPAA right to privacy. You have when you're a, f- you, f- a public figure. You, you have the HIPAA right to privacy. You don't have the political right to privacy.
0: I you mean, know? this is sort of one of the things they told us in journalism school. They were right. like, FYI, when you take this job, you give up your right to privacy. Right. Totally. And it's kind of the same in politics totally. as well.
1: Totally. All right. Let's go.
0: All right. Let's go both. Well, we're both spicy getting going oh, in the new it's, it's year. We had some stuff
1: saved up. We had some stuff saved up.
0: Yeah, it's been stockpiling That's right. all the feelings. That's right. All right, what is your
1: smile? Oh my god! Since we
0: were talking so, about Twitter, <laughs> there,
1: yeah, I know. There's, so maybe you saw in the Wall Street Journal this weekend an article laying out uh, Elon Musk's allegations of Elon Musk's uh, continued and reasonably heavy drug use. Um, uh, cocaine, marijuana, and ketamine. People are especially concerned about his use of ketamine, which, if you recall, not making causal comparisons here, that's what mm-hmm. Matthew Perry died of, right? Over in right. use of ketamine, which I, I still mm-hmm. don't understand what ketamine is, but that's all a whole different podcast. Um, anyway, mm-hmm. there's a columnist from Bloomberg named Matt Levine who writes really detailed and complicated columns, but they are often spot on and also, number two, really, really penetrating. And he goes into um, Musk and what it means that the richest man in the world, yes, fine, but also the CEO of SpaceX and Starlink with serious national security implications is using these drugs. And then he says, he pos- he posits a hypothetical, and he says uh, uh, that uh, Musk could walk into the Secretary of Defense office and say... Um, Do you want to send your rockets up? Do you want to send your weapon systems up with me? Or should I just do some more cocaine and have a good time? Elon Musk is too big to fail a drug test. He is too big to fail a drug test. Right? You want to send... Here's the actual quote. Do you want to send your satellites up on my good rockets? Or do you want to enforce your rules about drug use by government contractors? He's too big to fail a drug test. It's a really good column. And it's really provocative. Mm.
0: Wow. Yeah. Anyway. I, I love that his lawyer says that he's, <laughs> that said that yeah. Musk is regularly and randomly tested at SpaceX, drug tested at SpaceX, and has never failed a test. First of all, what other CEO do you know <laughs> is regularly and randomly getting drug uh-huh. tests at work? Because that in itself is pretty telling.
1: No, not, not Why does be...
0: this here make me smile?
1: Well, okay. Oh, for the, for the, <laughs> well, okay. So, number one, it's funny. Read the whole column. But number two, okay. I, thought, I thought too big to fail a drug test was really clever. <clears throat> but number three, <laughs> imagine you're the SpaceX flunky whose job it is to hand musk the cup and then follow him into the restroom and watch. Come on, man. <laughs> That's the way it works in Navy drug tests. Let me tell you that. Anyway. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: What was that movie where everybody was, like, super DNA tested all the time, but there was a guy who wanted to be an astronaut? And so, like, Jude Law was his doppelganger, and he pretended to be him and was, like, trying to figure out ways around the drug tests. Oh,
1: I don't um don't know. Oh,
0: gosh. Someone will find it. Someone, let's see if it's in the chat yet. Gattaca. That's right. Gattaca. Gattaca. Where, um, yeah, and he had all these different ways to, like— trick the DNA testing. And so he was taking the the guy who he was imitating, he was, like, taking hairs out of his brush and putting, like, planting the brush in the place where they knew they would test and, you know, bringing, like, bags of urine with him to work to do the drug tests and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it had Uma Thurman, Ethan Hawke, and Jude Law. Oh, well. Thank you, Ellen Rolfus, for all of the details. Wow. Gotta love that. Okay.
1: All right, there you go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> anyway, well, when enraged about various things that often, which often happens to me when I read the news, uh, music is peaceful. Music makes me happy, and uh, sometimes I listen to some jazz. I do love Coltrane every so often, and I saw this beautiful piece in Smithsonian Magazine, uh, on, you know, hidden gem that Smithsonian Magazine mm-hmm. I do love totally. it, um, called "How John Col- Coltrane's My Favorite Things Changed American Music," and. This was in 1960 60 when this recording was made. Coltrane was 34 and it was the first proper recording session for the John Coltrane Quartet and it promptly produced one of the greatest moments in jazz history. And I want to read just this one paragraph. True. It's a timeless song and quite possibly the most American recording in history, composed by the grandsons of German and Russian Jews about an Austrian family fleeing the Nazis on their way to America, played by an African-American genius in a vernacular Hmm. American style, produced by one Turkish American for a record label owned by another Turkish American. The recording is not in or of the melting pot. It is the melting pot.
1: Hmm. That's great.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful piece and really gets into a lot of how Coltrane got to that place and some of the struggles that he had been through up until that point, why that recording was particularly important in that moment and sort of the turn it made in the career and, and how many other groups and people have been influenced by this one particular piece. Anyway, it made me happy, made me smile. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, okay. yeah. All right. That is it for us today. Our first day back on the show from the new year. Thank you to everybody who uh, reached out with messages and notes and ideas over the holiday. We'll be going through those and hopefully get into some of that. But we still want to hear from you, especially about any New Year's resolutions that you may have made while you were out while we were on break. We are at 508 smart. You can also email us at makemesmart at org. Over to you, kiddo. Oh, sorry. My bad. Make <laughs> Me Smart is produced by Courtney Burke Seeker. Today's program was engineered by Drew Jostad. Eld Rolfus writes our newsletter and is our movie encyclopedia, apparently.
1: <laughs> Marissa Cabrera is our senior producer. Bridget Bonner is the director of podcast. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. First day back. We're still,
0: the still getting back into the rhythm. Still getting back into the rhythm.